0: Are you losing faith in the world around you? Do you find yourself constantly asking why something is the way that it is? Do you wonder about God? Maybe you're disillusioned with church, but you still feel a call. Or maybe you realize that there has to be something more for you in this life. Pull up a chair and take a seat because you've arrived at the right place. The Human Conservation Podcast. With host Rev. Corby Willette. Restoring faith in humanity by exploring the paths of culture, history, nature, science, and spirituality. Promoting human conservation through human conversation. Welcome back to the Human Conservation Podcast. I'm your host, Rev. Corby. I hope everyone's had a blessed week with lots of laughs, love, and smiles. Today's part three in our series of good things. Over the past couple of weeks, we covered the Good Shepherd and the Good News, so if you want to catch up and you get a spare moment, you should really head back and give them a listen. So we had the Good News, Good Shepherd. Today, we've got the Good Book, and we're going to be talking about the Bible, how it can be used and misused, and the role that it should play in our lives that most glorifies Christ. Now, when we hear the term, the Good Book, Most of us acknowledge that it's sort of a slang term for the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go into a long history lesson on how the Bible was put together, but for basic purposes, it consists of the Old and New Testaments, and when you break it down further, it contains 66 individual books, or 73 if you're Catholic. Now, we know that the Bible has been translated a great multitude of times, and that men ultimately translated it from language to language and decided what should and shouldn't be included in it. This obviously leaves the door open that there's a large margin for error. So why is it the definitive word? Which translation should we be reading? Whose version? How can we be sure with so many human hands manipulating it over the centuries? And we're not even talking about interpretations yet. There are over 800 versions of the Christian Bible currently in print today. All manner of scholars, teachers, preachers, regular everyday folks, all of them have an opinion on what certain things mean. Who's right? Who are we supposed to be listening to? How do you take it literally when it's been translated so many times? Is it just symbolism? With words and stories that are meant to teach us uh, a spiritual lesson? Why does there appear to be so much contradiction in it? These are all valid questions. And questions, quite frankly, we should not be afraid to ask. Well, this week we're going to try and make as much sense out of this as we possibly can. We're going to keep the Bible on the shelf for just a moment. And then we're going to grab a different book instead. The book we're going to be grabbing is called The Stonecutter*. It's a Japanese fairy tale that dates back to at least 1885, but was first published in English in 1903 as part of a collection of short stories called the Crimson Fairy Book. It's been altered and republished numerous times, and the version that I'm going to read now is uncredited. Anyone see what I'm, what I'm getting at here? Well, the story goes like this. Once there was a poor stonecutter. Each day he went to the mountain and he cut blocks of stone, and then he took them to the market to sell. He was quite happy until one day he looked through the gate of a rich man's house. He saw the rich man sitting in the shade with servants bringing him food to eat. Surely the rich man is greater than I, sighed the poor stonecutter. If only I were a rich man, then I would be truly happy. And the spirit of the mountain heard the stonecutter and gave him what he wanted. And at once the stonecutter found himself sitting in a garden of a nice house with servants bringing him food. Now I will be truly happy, thought the stonecutter. But a few days later, he looked out the window and saw the king's palace. He saw many servants hurrying to obey the king, and he saw how great the king's palace was. Surely the king is greater than I, he sighed. If only I were a king. Then I would be truly happy. The spirit of the mountain heard the stonecutter and gave him what he wanted. And at once the stonecutter found himself sitting on a throne in a great palace with servants hurrying to do whatever he wanted. Now I will be truly happy, thought the stonecutter. But a few days later he was standing outside. The sun was beating down on his head. It was so hot that he had to go inside. "'Surely the sun is greater than I,' he sighed. "'If only I were the sun, then I would be truly happy.' "'And the spirit of the mountain heard the stonecutter "'and gave him what he wanted. "'And at once the stonecutter became the sun, "'burning in the sky. "'He shone down on the earth, "'and people cowered under his heat. "'Now I will be truly happy,' thought the stonecutter. "'But soon a cloud came between him and the earth, so that no one could see him. Surely the cloud is greater than I, he sighed. If only I were the cloud, then I would be truly happy. And the spirit of the mountain once again heard the stonecutter and gave him what he wanted. And at once the stonecutter became a cloud, raining upon the earth. Where the rain came, people ran for their houses. Now I will be truly happy, thought the stonecutter but he noticed when the rain beat down on the mountain, the mountain was not affected. Surely the mountain is greater than I, he sighed. If only I were the mountain, then I would be truly happy. The spirit of the mountain heard the stonecutter and gave him what he wanted. And at once the stonecutter became the mountain, strong and firm. Now I will be truly happy, thought the stonecutter. But soon he noticed a small stonecutter coming up the side of the mountain. And the stonecutter cut blocks of stone from the mountain and took them away. Surely the stonecutter is greater than I, he sighed. If only I were the stonecutter, then I would be truly happy. The spirit of the mountain heard and gave him what he wanted. And at once he was a poor stonecutter again. At this he was thankful and never wished, again, to be something that he was not. I think we all understand the simple yet powerful moral to the story. But what gives it its meaning? What makes this message powerful, and why does it resonate with some of us? For me, it's because when I heard it for the first time, I was 20 years old, and I was in a place where I was questioning my own self-worth. And this became a story that I drew on over and over throughout the years, Here I am 30 years later using it in a podcast. Now, if you walked into a store and you just saw the book, The Stonecutter, sitting on the shelf, but you never read it, you didn't read it, you didn't open it, would it still hold the same meaning to you? I mean, the words that are printed inside, they're the same, right? Whether or not you read it. How about if I read it and paraphrase it for you? I'm a pretty good storyteller. I have my own podcast, right? Would it be as meaningful? Sure, I might entertain you, and you might get the gist of what it's about, but I don't think it's going to have the same impact as if you read it for yourself. It's our imagination that puts power into books, our ability to relate the story to our own lives. We're the ones that activate the meaning. Well, the Bible is like that too, only instead of putting your imagination into it, you put your faith into it. Imagination is good. It can carry you to places to escape reality and just disappear. But faith, faith gives you something to hold on to. Faith gives you something that you can build upon. The Bible's more than a book. It's the vehicle that we use to communicate with God. It is a supplement to our faith and prayer. Without faith and prayer, the Bible is just words on a page. This is why the literalists are never taken seriously and end up pushing more people away than they draw in. And this is why they are wrong. You have to let the Bible mean what it means and not try to make it mean what it says. On a side note, do you know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is what we call common sense so let's use that for a minute if you hold the bible to the letter essentially it means and this is going to sound really really harsh but it means that adolf hitler could have hit his knees moments before his death and had a true and this is important a true conversion of repentance you didn't just speak the words, hey, I'm sorry, had a true repentance and conversion of heart, God would forgive him and he would go to heaven. But the six million Jews that he murdered would be condemned because they, re- because they rejected the Messiah. Does anyone believe that that is how it works? I'm sorry if you can't see that there is a lot of symbolism and folklore in the Bible, and I believe that it was made that way on purpose. If it wasn't, Jesus would not have spoken parables. Look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, if you're trying to convince someone that the Bible is meant to be taken to the letter, then you're trying to convince that person that you understand exactly how God works and why. Essentially, you are saying that you're as smart as God, and for for your sake, I hope you're right because you can lead an awful lot of people astray that way. I've used this before, and it's worth revisiting. The wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine, well, they ran out of wine at the wedding. This might not be a big offense by today's standards, but in that time, it was a big deal. Let's pick up the story there. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for commercial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best for now. Now again, if we're talking literally and we're holding the Bible to the letter, it means what? The wine that Jesus made was better than the good wine that was served first. But now let's really be literal. It says they bring out the choice wine first, and the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink after the guests have had too much to drink. So they already had too much to drink, and Jesus made more and gave it to them. Hmm. Jesus okay with the overindulgence of, of alcohol? That's literally what it says. Here's the best part, it doesn't matter what I think, it only matters what you think. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't get together and discuss it amongst ourselves in a Bible study or a fellowship. Hearing other people's ideas about the Word is a healthy thing. It makes God happy. Some Christians get so crazy defending the Bible when it needs no defense. And others get crazy trying to refute the Bible because they don't like what it says. We see this a lot when we're dealing with the topic of homosexuality. We're going to dive deeper next week when we talk about sin, but there really should be no argument. It speaks to all of us differently and at different times. A lot of the problems that arise often come when people are trying to use the Bible to, to prove their point, to prove the existence of God or explain to somebody why they should be behaving uh, a different way than they are or why they should be doing something that they're not. I see Christians all the time approach non-believers out of genuine care and concern for their well-being. And the answer is always, God says, and then they quote passages of scripture. And then they can't figure out why the person wasn't receptive the other side of it is people that claim to be atheists and they dig up all kinds of science to try and refute Bible stories. Uh, Goliath couldn't have possibly been as tall as he was or Adam and Eve couldn't have possibly populated the planet by themselves. Every animal couldn't have fit on the ark or Noah couldn't have been 600 years old. You get all of this type of stuff. After that, you have the pick and choose Bible believers. Those are the people that take the things that they like about the Bible and hold them sacred and then just don't believe the things that they don't like about the Bible. Convenience Christians. It's not the atheists or the religious zealots that scare me though. The people that scare me are the ones who hold the Bible in their hands and use the words to condemn their brothers and sisters in Christ. To take the words and sometimes twist them in a fashion that condemns another person, is detrimental to the kingdom of God. And most of the time, it's done without the person even realizing what it is that they're doing. Again, this highlights the importance of reading the Bible for yourself. One of the most valuable things that you can do in your Christian walk, especially early on, is attend a regular Bible study. Discussing and debating the word is often healthy as long as it's not bordering on disrespect. But something I must caution everyone about is showing up without reading the material. I can't stress enough how important it is to have your own thoughts on the scripture and not rely solely on others' interpretations. You may agree with them, that's not the point indoctrination has become a huge problem in this country, and the church is not an innocent bystander in this practice. Thinking for yourself, trusting in what you receive through your own prayer, your own reading, and your own relationship with Jesus is how to ensure that you are not going to fall into this trap. That's the heavy, serious stuff. Now let's, let's have a little bit of fun with the Bible. That's right. Not only is it enlightening, but reading the Bible can be a fun thing too. There are many things that most people aren't aware of that have their origins in the Bible. When I take out my Bible, I become what I like to call a spiritual archaeologist. And the Bible's my dig site. I pray before I read that God will reveal something for me. And sometimes we can unearth some pretty cool stuff when we read the Bible. Let me give you a couple of fun examples uh, that I discovered just on my walk. Genesis 9, verses 13 to 17, read, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now there's a couple of cool things uh, in that scripture. Uh, The rainbow has its origins in the Bible. And it's a symbol of God's promise to never flood the earth again. But it's not just a promise to to you and me. It's a promise to all flesh, to all living things. It's a promise to our pets and the wild animals. So all you nature lovers, God was thinking about all flesh. Even if you think it's hogwash, it was written more than 3,000 years ago, which means someone had the wherewithal to identify the rainbow with rain and flooding. And I think that's pretty cool to think about. How about this one? Leviticus 6, verses 7 through 10. This reads, Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord, and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So the term scapegoat is from the Bible. Now when I first read this, I actually chuckled a little bit because despite the negative connotation that goes with being a scapegoat, it actually sounds like Being the scapegoat biblically is the more positive outcome. The goat who wins gets sacrificed, but if you lose, you're the scapegoat and you make atonement for the people by being set free in the wilderness. Uh, That's probably a a game of lots that I would want to lose there. Ecclesiastes 3 reads, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. To the younger people, that verse might not strike a chord, but to those of us that are getting up there, that's the lyrics to the Vietnam-era song Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. Funny enough, though, Peter Seeger gets credit for writing that even though it dates back to about 175 B.C., It's still a great song, though. I'm not going to sing it for you. But probably the most important discovery that can be made digging through the Bible is creation. There is so much debate on this subject, and science makes a lot out of why the creation story can't possibly be true. I used to march around life telling people that I was open-minded to the possibility of there being a God when they can prove it to me. The whole creation story seemed so ridiculous and outlandish to me. Even after I gave my life to Christ, I was unsure about the whole creation story. But then, as I was reading, something came into focus for me. I started to see that while God was talking about days and resting, the evolutionary timeline was laying out events of millions and millions of years. No, I'm asking you that even if You don't believe in the theory of evolution, or the other way, you don't believe in creation, hear me out for a second. Because if you forget about the actual time, days versus millions of years, you will find that the events line up chronologically very, very close. Coupled with the fact that evolution is still technically a theory, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Look it up for yourself. Look up the creation timeline versus the evolutionary timeline. And I realized as I was reading and seeing that, that science is not the enemy of Christ, but the friend. The two can coexist. The attitude shouldn't be, I will believe in God when you're proven. Rather, it should be, prove to me that God doesn't exist. I say it with confidence because in order to tell me that God isn't real, you have to tell me how something came from nothing. Scientifically speaking, that is impossible. Wrapping it up here, I want to circle back. I hope that I've been able to create at least a little bit of understanding about letting the Bible mean what it means and not trying to make it mean what it says. It's not intended to hold someone else hostage It's meant as a vehicle to communicate with God and guide us through life, to draw us closer to God, to speak to God and have God speak with us. It's alive, and it's changing all the time in how it speaks to us. The words stay the same, but God brings things out of it as we need it. That's why it is the most important book, but it needs to be used in conjunction with faith, And it needs to be used not as an encyclopedia. Is the law in there? Yes. Are the Ten Commandments in there? Yes. But Jesus himself said to love God and love one another. Everything else falls in line between those two. That's not to say that people aren't accountable. When using the Bible or quoting it to witness to another human being Make sure that you're using it from a position to save and not a position to condemn. Now, I just want to throw this in at the end. No doubt there's going to be some people that raise an eyebrow, may not agree with something that I I said in this podcast. Like I always say, if you hear something on the Human Conservation Podcast that is in conflict with your interpretation of the Word of God, then you always side with the word. I'm just a man. You will not go wrong trusting the word. Now, next week, things are going to get a little bit hairy. We just finished our three-part series on good. Now we're going to start talking about the bad. Next week, we're talking about sin. What is sin? How can we conquer it? And what are the consequences of it? You're definitely going to want to tune in for that. As always, I thank you for stopping by to give me a listen. If you like what you heard and you want to help out, give the podcast a review and click as many stars as you feel appropriate. This helps get the word out and helps other people find the podcast. If you'd like more information about me, you can find that at Corby.com, spelled C-O-R-B-I-E-Y.com. And if you have questions or comments about the podcast, you could send those to hcpodcast at corby.com. And that's the episode for this week. Remember to be kind to one another, help one another, and check in with friends and family often and let them know they're worth. It can make a difference. If you're the one hurting, do not hesitate to dial 988. I hope everyone has a blessed week, and remember... Human conservation can only come about through human conversation.